1 John chapter 2, verses 12 to 14. This is the word of the Lord. I'm writing to you, little children, because your sins are forgiven for his name's sake. I'm writing to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I'm writing to you, young men, because you have overcome the evil one. I write to you, children, because you know the Father. I write to you, fathers, because you know him who is from the beginning. I write to you, young men, because you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. We pray that your spirit would uh, be actively at work uh, within us. And, you know, every time we uh, open up your word and uh, hear from your word, um, we, want to, uh, we want to know that uh, it, we are hearing from you. And you speak to us, uh, not just privately and individually, but you also speak to us as a body, as a community. And so, God, we ask that you would speak today and help us to uh, be formed in our hearts. May our desires be formed by the things of you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. Happy uh, Fourth of July weekend. We are going through a series on First John. And the reason we are going through this series is because we want to focus on something very simple, but something very important which is love. Jesus says the law of God can basically be summarized as loving God and loving neighbor. And I think John takes that and he basically says, this is how you know that you know God. You obey God's commandments and you love one another. And in the passage last week, you know, John is actually pretty direct when he says, if you claim to know God, but you don't keep his commandments, namely the command to love God and to love one another, then you are a liar. You can't claim to know God and walk in the darkness simultaneously. So the identifying mark of being a disciple of Jesus or a follower of Jesus is not necessarily how much theology and doctrine uh, you know, but it seems to be by how you love one another. Now, the passage that we're going to look at today, it is actually a little bit of an interruption. And uh, if you were to read this entire letter at, at its whole, uh, you would see it's a little bit of a divergence from the main point of the letter, but it is a necessary interruption because I do think it ministers to someone who might hear what John is saying and think, oh no, maybe I'm not a Christian because the other day I got angry at someone and in that moment I really hated that person. And this interruption takes uh, the warning and the hardline message uh, that it seems like John is giving from the previous passage and I think it gives it a little bit more nuance. Now, uh, I, I heard some preaching advice once that I thought was useful. And this person said, you know, you have to have enough wisdom to create enough space for nuance without drowning the message in nuance. So if you nuance everything, then what it ends up doing is it muddies the, the main point of the message and the message becomes unclear. But if you don't give any nuance, then the danger is that the message might be misunderstood or misinterpreted. And so without proper nuance, uh, you can maybe create these false binaries of either this or that when maybe the reality is more like it could be both or it could be neither or it could be something else entirely. And you know that's probably why social media and Twitter are not places to have complex dialogue and conversations because it limits, uh, it literally by character, limits your ability to nuance things. But you know, in all kinds of constructive dialogue, a lot of work has to be done saying, by the way, when I said this, I didn't mean that. Or when I said this, it doesn't mean that I don't believe in that. And since the style of communication of, let's say a sermon like right now, or uh, this letter that John is writing to uh, this community, it's not a two-way dialogue. And so therefore there is no space to ask clarifying questions. You can say to John in this letter, when you said a person who does not keep God's commandments is a liar, 
does that mean I'm not a believer when I fall into temptation? Because again, recently I got angry and I said and did some unkind things to someone. Does that mean my sins haven't been forgiven? And, you know, of course, that's the advantage of a two-way dialogue in that you can respond and clarify some of these questions. But in the ancient world, communication is not instantaneous and it is done through written form and somebody had to actually deliver this letter and it took a while for this letter to be delivered. So uh, you would have to wait a long time to get some feedback on those letters. And of course, another place in scripture, like for example, uh, the apostle Paul, uh, you could tell that people misunderstood some of the things that he was saying because in some of his letters, he's actually clarifying some of the things that were misunderstood or misinterpreted. And I think uh, maybe in John's old age and in his wisdom, this interruption in this passage is kind of his way of giving this pastoral nuance to some of the things he is saying because I maybe he can imagine, well, if I say it this way, maybe somebody will receive it in this way. So let me, um, let me give some nuance and clarification. Now, last week we said, if you aren't living in obedience to God and loving others, uh, John is saying, well, the reason might be is maybe you don't actually know God. Maybe you are not walking in fellowship with God. It's possible that you could be a performative believer or what the Bible calls a hypocrite. And uh, I gave this illustration a, a, a couple of weeks ago when I introduced the series, but it's like those glow-in-the-dark toys that need light in order to glow. If it's exposed to the light, if you are walking in the light, then you will glow in the dark. If you are not walking in the light, then you won't be able to glow at all. But here's a nuance. You could actually be in the light, but as with those glow-in-the-dark toys, sometimes it just takes some time for that light to be absorbed and for that toy to start to glow, right? In other words, you may be struggling to love because maybe you haven't uh, matured enough as a believer and there is some room for growth. It doesn't mean you haven't been forgiven. It doesn't mean you haven't been saved, but it just means that you need to grow a little bit and walk in the light a little bit longer so that you can grow in these things. I do think that's what this passage, passage is showing us. Uh, there's a sense in which being a Christian means, uh, of course, something has been completed. You have been forgiven. You have already known God. You have already overcome the evil one. But there's also another sense in which being a Christian means you are in the process of these things. You are in the process of being completed. You are still growing. You are still fighting sin. You are still striving to live obediently. And John gives us a picture of these both senses, which I think is really important. Because without understanding the finished and accomplished aspect of being a Christian, uh, you can never have any assurance. But without understanding that there is a process to Christian growth, then you have like a cancel culture and you don't leave room for people to grow. When the passage addresses children, fathers, and young men, uh, these are statements of, uh, you know, there are statements of something that has been completed, but he also addresses these various groups of people uh, to tell us that Christian growth is a process. Now, commentators are saying uh, it's addressing all believers and not just male groups, although it's phrased as addressing only male groups. But John is using these stages of development in a man's life to refer to uh, the stages of life for a believer in terms of maturity and in terms of growth. So it's, uh, it's like when Jesus talks about being born again to Nicodemus in the Gospel of John, when you become a believer, there is this new birth that takes place and you begin your spiritual development as a child. 
Then there are those who have been walking in fellowship with God for a long, long, long time, and they would be like the spiritual mothers and fathers. And then you have those who are in the middle, the young men. They aren't new Christians, but they haven't exactly matured to the point where they can be considered a spiritual mother or father. I think all of us can probably locate ourselves in one of those stages. Now, before we look at what John says to each group, I do want to point out something about the, uh, the style, the poetic repetition. Repetition is this mnemonic device that helps you remember something. So it's like learning a song. Uh, for most people, you remember the chorus because it tends to repeat. You remember God is so good, God is so good, God is so good to me, right? Because we repeat it. Uh, when I hear, you know, Billie Jean in my head from Michael Jackson, I hear, right, Billie Jean is not my lover, right? Because that's part of the song that repeats itself. John is using repetition in this letter, which is something uh, we talked about when I introduced this book, but I think he's using repetition in an intentional way to make what he says something that is easy for this community to remember. Uh, because remember, this, is, uh, this letter is probably being transmitted uh, orally in the sense of someone receives a letter and is reading it out to the community. Now, when the message is something that is simple and something that we already know, I think the temptation is to dismiss it and not really think about it as deeply as we ought. Uh, I know I'm built like that because I get a little bit frustrated when I read a book and I don't learn anything new because of uh, it's a time commitment. And there are so many books uh, I feel like I need to read, but not enough time. And so if uh, someone wrote a book about the importance of loving one another, to be honest, I probably wouldn't buy that book or read that book because my assumption is, hey, that's something that I already know. It's nothing new. But it's the things that we already know or the things that we think we already know that are probably some of the things that we actually need to spend a little bit more time meditating on. Do I really know how important it is to love one another? Do I really understand what love looks like? Or is there something in my life that diminishes the centrality of love as an expression of my faith? Am I making excuses not to love others? Am I making concessions where I shouldn't be? Do I love those who I don't agree with? Do I love those who tend to annoy me? Do I love those who have slandered or attacked me? What's holding me back from being a loving person? And these are questions of reflection and meditation that, uh, especially when it comes to the simpler things and the simpler messages that we ought to really delve deeper into. Uh, but since all of us, I think, will fall short of this standard of love to some degree, uh, and we all struggle with choosing to uh, love ourselves rather than loving others, uh, sometimes we just might need some encouragement so that we don't feel like complete failures. And so I think John encourages three groups of people. Uh, he writes to little children, children, and he says two things to them. He says, your sins are forgiven for his namesake. And then he says, you know the Father. Now, if you're a young believer, then one of the things you might struggle with is assurance. You might say, how do I know that I'm actually a believer? How do I know that God really accepts me? How do I know some of these things? Uh, I mentioned this also a few weeks ago, but when I was in my 20s, I used to volunteer a lot for uh, various things in youth ministry, and I'd be like uh, counselors at these retreats, and um, I would uh, have like small groups with some high school students. And I would say that one of the things that some of these students struggled with is uh, assurance, uh, having assurance as believers. And I think where they were coming from is they're coming from a place where they would just get very frustrated with their own lack of uh, spiritual growth because what would happen is they would go to a retreat 
and experience this spiritual high only to seemingly go back to their old way of life uh, a few weeks later or a few months later. And after a few rides on this kind of like spiritual roller coaster, they would just get discouraged and they would start to doubt the legitimacy of their faith. And they would say, hey, if I'm really a Christian, shouldn't I be uh, changing already? Shouldn't I, I have overcome uh, some of these things? Shouldn't I have more passion for Jesus and for the things of the Lord? And what I would try to do is I would try to reassure them and say that uh, their faith is not contingent upon whether they can maintain this spiritual high or maintain this emotional passion, but their salvation is based on the gracious gift of God and the objective work of Jesus Christ on the cross, that their sins have been forgiven, not because they have merited it, not because they have earned it, but simply out of sheer grace. And I think that's what young believers probably need to hear, because until you have the firm grasp of the gospel, uh, you can start to think that true faith is something that is generated within us through our will and through our own passions. And when John addresses little children, I think what I think that's why he is saying what he is saying. He knows that there are probably young uh, believers, and not in terms of age, but in terms of their spiritual uh, development, and that what he just said might be a little bit disorienting. So he's assuring them of their status before God. Children, your sins are forgiven. The tense of the verb signals it's a completed act, not an ongoing process. He says, you know the Father, which is also the same Greek tense, which is uh, not so clear in the English translation. He says, you don't have to doubt whether you are a believer because your sins are forgiven and you know the Father. Then he addresses the fathers and he says the same thing to them twice. He says, you know him who is from the beginning. And even though John is not necessarily uh, corresponding these categories to the age of a person, I do think there is some correlation between age and spiritual maturity. Uh, that's not to say that you know, the more you advance in years, uh, the more you necessarily grow in spiritual maturity, because it is possible that in your advanced years, if you neglect uh, your relationship with God, you could become uh, a hopeless person or a cynical person or a bitter person. Uh, but at the same time, I think there is something about being older and walking with Jesus longer than others. Uh, when you're younger, uh, you, you tend to think everything uh, seems important. Uh, the college that you go to, is super important. The job that you get is super important. The achievement, achievements that you have is super important. Uh, the salary that you make is super important. All these things are just really important. And uh, I suspect that when you get older, uh, your understanding of what is important, it starts to take on greater focus. And you start to see how important love is. You start to see that some of the battles that you fought in your youth weren't really worth fighting you start to recognize the limitations of your ability because you've experienced enough failures. You also see the limitations of time because you know in your older age that your days are numbered. And the thing that spiritual mothers and fathers have most, I think, is a depth of knowing God that can only be cultivated when walking with him for a lifetime. Uh, there's this famous preacher, Charles Spurgeon. Uh, he's a preacher of the 19th century, and he once told a story about a time when his grandfather was present during one of his sermons uh, that he preached when he was a young preacher. And at the end of the service, he asked his grandfather and said, can you close the service in prayer? And his grandfather comes up and he puts his hand on, you know, Charles Spurgeon's uh, back. And he says, Charles can tell you about it, but I have lived it. The longer I serve him, 
the sweeter he grows. Spiritual fathers remind us of that. Uh, Jesus is sweeter. Uh, Jesus is worth walking with until the final days of our lives. Uh, and by the way, uh, I remember the previous pastor, Pastor John, uh, of this church. He, he once gave a sermon on this very passage. And uh, he was saying how uh, we actually need more spiritual mothers and fathers in the church. Uh, and I think, he, you know, he looked at our church and he saw, you know, we skew. You know, we don't have any older people. And that's probably a detriment for us. Uh, we probably don't have enough spiritual fathers around us, uh, especially in New York, because Manhattan tends to skew uh, younger, and a lot of the churches in the city are probably filled with younger people. But, you know, when you come across someone who has lived a full life walking with Jesus, uh, it really is a great encouragement. Uh, it encourages you to press on, and it encourages you to maintain uh, the right perspective in life. You know, in God's household, we need spiritual mothers and fathers to show us the sweetness of a life lived with Jesus. Finally, he writes to young men and he says, you have overcome the evil one and you are strong and the word of God abides in you and you have overcome the evil one. Uh, now, the word for a uh, young man in the Greek, it usually refers to a period when a man is in his prime strength. So from ages 22 to maybe 28 years old and that's the age when a man in the ancient world would grow to assume greater responsibilities in the civic life of the city. And to this group, he wants to emphasize their victory in Christ. I imagine it's because this season of spiritual development is probably going to be filled with a lot of defeat. When you are young and you uh, start taking on maybe greater responsibility, uh, it's, I think it's common to have a very idealistic vision of yourself and how things are supposed to turn out in your life. But then you, you know, encounter the realities of life and you experience some failures, you experience some defeat. That idealism turns uh, into a sober understanding of how difficult and broken you are and how uh, difficult and broken uh, life is. And I think that, that transition can be hard uh, because it makes you feel like such a failure. Similarly, a quote-unquote young man in their spiritual development might have a certain idealistic vision of what their God, uh, walk with God was supposed to be and how God was going to use them only to have stumbled along the way. And you start to figure out you're not as good as you thought you were. You figure out you're not as mature or capable as you thought you were. Maybe some of your relationships are broken or become broken, and maybe you're the cause of some of those broken relationships. Uh, maybe you have some kind of moral uh, failing. Maybe you just don't have as much passion or motivation to walk with God and to love others. And coming to that revelation can be discouraging. Uh, you can easily feel defeated and think, oh, Satan is getting the best of me. And at that point, you have to decide whether to press on or to give in to that despair and maybe bitterness or maybe hopelessness. Do you know what pressing on looks like? Uh, it looks like a life of repentance uh, and a turning to the Lord over and over again so that you can experience his forgiveness and mercy over and over and over again. And I think that's why people who have gone through that process repeatedly, the uh, spiritual mothers and fathers of the church, when they reach their senior years, I think that's why they can say Jesus becomes sweeter and sweeter. Uh, because you begin to reach a depth of knowledge, and not just head knowledge, but really personal experiential knowledge of the sweetness of his grace, of his mercy, and of his love. 
And, uh, you know, we need spiritual mothers and fathers to show us these things. Now, John's encouragement to the young men category is that because of, um, uh, he's saying this because of Jesus. Uh, he's saying you are strong because of Jesus. The word of God abides in you. Through Christ, you have overcome the evil one. Because true strength comes not from within us, but when we know that God is with us, that is when we are strong. When Joshua led the people into the land of Canaan, he told them to be strong and courageous. Why? Not because Joshua was strong, but because the Lord was with them. When Paul talks about spiritual warfare in Ephesians 6, what does he say? Be strong in the Lord, in the strength of his might. Why? Not because, again, we ourselves are strong, but we are strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. We are strong by virtue of being united to Christ and having the word of God abide in us and sharing in his victory over Satan through his death and resurrection. And so as we experience maybe some discouragement, uh, maybe some disillusionment in the young men category phase, um, John's encouragement is, hey, you've, you've overcome. You're victorious because of Jesus. You are strong in Christ. And that is an encouragement uh, for these categories of people. Now, I do want to talk about a little bit about spiritual fathers for a moment and go back to that idea. You know, when Pastor John preached this message, uh, he, he actually had this idea that didn't really come to fruition. But, uh, you know, it was a pretty good idea. And he thought it would be good if churches provided housing for retired missionaries. And uh, the reason for that is it would kind of be a win-win because missionaries would be housed. Uh, but then also retired missionaries could spend some time in churches and they can be the spiritual mothers and fathers for us. And I think, uh, you know, the, the idea behind that was uh, really good. He saw a need that uh, we are lacking in spiritual mothers and fathers, and we could really benefit from seeing a life of perseverance or what it looks like to persevere until uh, closer to the end of your life. And what he saw then is still true for us in that we don't really have that many spiritual mothers and fathers uh, among us. So, uh, here's what I want to do. You know, I couldn't really think of a great way to conclude this message, but I thought, let me end the sermon uh, from a spiritual father, uh, someone who has been a spiritual father to many communities and to many churches. And I started, uh, when I started the series, I, I referred to him. Uh, it's a guy named John Perkins, and uh, he was a civil rights activist. He was a Bible teacher. He was a community developer, and he's written many books. And during the civil rights movement, he uh, he was thrown in jail, uh, and the reason he was thrown in jail, he simply went to the jail to post bail for some demonstrators who were arrested, but when he showed up, uh, police officers threw him in jail and they beat him. So he has experienced uh, racism and uh, from those who were supposed to serve and protect, and he's experienced um, you know, a lot of hardship and a lot of racism towards him as an African-American man. And yet, his legacy, uh, as recounted by countless of countless people that he has mentored and loved his legacy is love uh there you know my professor has uh, uh that where i'm in school now has been greatly impacted by this guy john perkins uh many of my classmates who uh, have worked in his organization um have been impacted many of the books and the books i've been reading and the authors have been impacted and mentored by this guy john perkins and they all love him because they say he was such a loving man. The reason I thought about him is, you know, recently, I think last week, he celebrated his 90th birthday. He's 90 years old now. Think about that. 
90 years old. Everything that he has seen, everything that he has experienced. John Perkins is a spiritual father that um, his presence might actually, uh, and his words might help us navigate 2020. Now, I don't know about you, but it is easy to lose hope, uh, especially as you read, if you read too much news and too much social media. And I think what we need is a spiritual father who has experienced, uh, experienced it all, basically, and still has been able to hold on to hope and still has been gracious and loving to others, including um, people who represent those who have oppressed him. And so let me end with uh, some of his words. I'm going to read it from his book. It's about two paragraphs, so bear with me, but I think his words are great. It comes from a book called Welcoming Justice, and it's the afterword. Um, by the way, these are this was written in 2009, so this is uh, pre the election of Donald Trump and, of course, pre-2020 uh, and everything that happened this year. But uh, here's what he says, and, you know, it's a good connection to the 4th of July. He says, our country claims to hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Chief among these rights is life, but these days we are asking a lot of questions about life. What are lives really worth, and whose lives matter? On some days, it seems that we as a people are practicing genocide. Black people are killing each other one by one with handguns. White folks are going into schools and theaters and concerts and killing white folks en masse. We are on a suicide mission. We have run out of human dignity. But I think there is hope. And I think that hope is waiting for us right where it's always been, in the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am hopeful because all reconciliation begins with the recognition of brokenness, and we see the evidence of our brokenness laid bare in our news and communities every day. I am hopeful because I sense the presence and empowerment of the Holy Spirit in the movements of young people who are striving to follow the Great Commission into the world, preaching the gospel to every ethnic group. They are taking to heart Paul's words in Galatians when he speaks of our oneness. There is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, nor there is nor is there male or female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. I am hopeful because we are living in a Pentecostal moment when God is ready to pour out the Holy Spirit on all people to empower those who are willing to be part of something courageous, something that's worth giving our lives for. Paul said, I die daily because he knew uh, you have to live every day like you're willing to die for what is right. A program alone won't solve our problems. New laws and more humane public policy will not solve our problems. We need what we already have, good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all people. We have grace, justification, and full redemption. And because of those gifts of God in Christ Jesus, we can find in ourselves the forgiveness, love, and welcome that we need to offer each other. Jesus told his friends that people would know they were his disciples if they loved one another. Our love is our witness. Love is the final fight. Very appropriate words for that fit very perfectly, I think, into the message of 1 John. I am 38 years old. I just turned 38 in May. I have walked with Jesus for about 20 years. John Perkins is 90 years old. Uh, he has been engaged in this final fight of love for many, many, many decades. Uh, as I give this uh, sermon or this series on 1 John, I can imagine John Perkins coming up uh, and putting his hand on my hand saying, Sam can teach you that these things are true, but I have lived it. Uh, what we really need more now than ever is what we have already been given in Jesus Christ. And in disorienting moments, um, 
if you're in the children category, the young, young men category in your spiritual development, perhaps it will be easy to uh, lose hope or to say, um, you know, this gospel, this Christianity stuff uh, doesn't work and we need something new. Uh, but I think it's precisely spiritual fathers like this who have gone through life and seen a lot of brokenness uh, who can remind us uh, what we have been given is exactly what we need. What we have been given through grace, through the cross, through redemption, through resurrection of Jesus Christ is exactly what we need in these times. And therefore, because we have been given these things, because we have been shown love to a great degree, we can also participate in this final fight of love, and we can be a people of love. Uh, let's pray together.